Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. Why would Jesus, who warns against the sword in Matthew chapter 26, threaten to use one in Matthew chapter 10? Why would Jesus set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother when in the Torah God commands that parents are to be honored? In Luke, the Gospel heralds the coming of Jesus with the proclamation, Peace on earth. Why then in Matthew does Jesus say, I did not come to bring peace? If you are looking for a simple answer along the lines of for or against, then turn off this podcast and watch cable news. If you hope to use Matthew chapter 10 to support your just war theory, at best, you are being lazy. Yes, the Bible does bring a sword and it is connected to the real violence we experience in the world. The question is, on which end of the sword are the followers of Jesus expected to find themselves? You're listening to the Bible as literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 88 of the Bible is Literature podcast. Today is a day when scraping out a window of time to have this conversation seems like something that we've achieved against all odds. So I feel it necessary to try to build up the level of enthusiasm for today's show. And it just so happens that one of our faithful listeners sent us some feedback and it's interesting feedback it's honest feedback and i think it's encouraging so i want to encourage my friend richard benton today so i'm going to read the feedback and of course our listener asked to remain anonymous which maybe tells you something about the feedback we're about to get i thought it might be nice father mark to tell you that i appreciate your podcasts I'm behind the times, still on Ecclesiastes, but still very grateful. I will send money soon. We thank you for that. We love your money. We know that the love of money is the root of all evil, but as we said last week, we are hypocrites. So we're fine with you sending your money to support the podcast. You'll probably also be happy to know that roughly... You and Richard edify me 30% of the time. Well, that's something. I mean, I was hopeful people might listen 30% of the time. So we're getting somewhere with this listener. You improve my biblical understanding 50% of the time. I feel like I'm entering into a negotiation. I'm wondering what the punchline is going to be. Now, if we were dealing with someone who had been listening to a standard secular podcast, we'd be getting buttered up for the big sale. But let's see what our listener says. And then... You anger me 20% of the time. (laughs) All right, so let's look at the numbers here. 30% of the time, he feels edified. 50% of the time, he's learning more about the Bible. And the other 20%, he's disgruntled. Well, that's about what you're aiming for, right, Father Mark? Insert your emoji here. Well, 
I don't know that we were targeting a certain percentage of frustration, but I do know that there is no learning without frustration. And I do know that if you can listen to a lecture on the Bible and not skin your knee, then you weren't listening to a lecture on the Bible. I think I'd be okay if we could flip the edification to 20% and the upsetting to 30%. I think that would be a a better number to shoot for. I don't know about you. Well, let's try on this episode. (laughs) Let's see if we can move those numbers. Fantastic. In all seriousness, thank you for the feedback. We appreciate the support of this work. We're delighted that you find benefit in this program. We ask you to spread the word because ultimately we're not trying to serve this program. We're trying to serve the content of the teaching. And we know that our listeners are part of that effort. So thanks very much. Thank you. So today we want to talk about a very interesting problem. Someone had reached out to me on Facebook this week and asked me to talk about Islam. This was a faithful member of one of our churches who is trying to respond to a lot of the hate speech that we've seen surrounding Islam, questions about what the true intent of the religion is, comparisons between Islam and Christianity, not intellectual, academic, meaningful dialogue in an effort to compare sacred texts and really understand where Islam differs from Christianity, but hate speech, painting all Muslims with a common brush, talking about Islam as being a terrorist religion, this kind of nonsense. So there was a great dialogue that ensued, and among the many, many things that showed up on my Facebook profile, someone mentioned that Jesus talks about bringing a sword in the gospel. They weren't making a specific point about Islam. This is something that just came up during the course of the conversation. What they were trying to do is question Christians who emphasize peace in the gospel. Now, I agree there was an observation made throughout the course of the discussion about the problem of platitudes about peace or platitudes about love. Putting up banners that say peace or banners that say love doesn't seem to jive with the way that scripture deals with the action of love and the action of submission, which produces peace. I think that defining a religion with a word is always going to be doing it a disservice because you're oversimplifying to say that Christianity is a religion of love, that Islam is a religion of peace, or saying that Christianity is a religion of intolerance, or that Islam is a religion of hate. I mean, defining it in one word is just ridiculous because the tensions we see in any one of these texts forces it outside of any categories we have of defining them. So to this person's credit, I think that's what she was driving at. But she was driving at it to undermine discussions that talk about teachings within the Quran being peaceful. Typically when this is brought up, what people mean is exactly what she was saying. Well, Jesus said he didn't come to bring peace, so how can Christians talk about peace as being the work of the gospel? Well, I think that's a misreading of the gospel and the text that we chose today to dive into that and to unpack this language about peace and bringing division and the sword is Matthew chapter 10. And what we found when we took a closer look, Richard, is that we're really talking about Micah and Matthew and Jesus manifesting the fulfillment of the meaning of Micah in his encounter with his opponents in Matthew chapter 10. One thing that the Bible throughout, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, and Jesus talks about it specifically in the gospel, is that 
there is always an effort to undermine the clan, undermine the family, undermine the genetic ties. And so when Jesus is talking about one family member against another family member, this is what he's trying to do. He's trying to teach that just because you're related by blood to somebody does not mean you're safer than the other person. That only thing that matters is obedience to Torah, obedience to the teaching of God, the teaching that we find in Scripture. This is the only thing that matters. And there's constant undermining of the clan, of the people. In the Older Testament, we have the same mechanism where it's always Israel that's being undermined. How are you guys so great if one tribe goes to war with the other tribe? What do you mean you're a great people? You yourselves are killing off each other. So the idea is that in the eschaton, in the final times, in the end times, it's going to be clear the separation between those who are faithful and those who are not faithful, and the split is not going to be along clan lines, along family lines, but are going to go right through the clan, right through the family, and this is what is going to be revealed in the end. What's true about all biblical literature is true about Micah. This exposure that is to come in the eschaton is already happening in Micah because the prophetic text is lambasting the rulers of Israel who depend on this matrix of clan and tribe in order to essentially consume the people for their own end. And the reason why we're bringing up Micah is because in this passage in Matthew, Jesus actually quotes from Micah. So in this discussion, we're trying to bring together some of the ideas that appear in both of these texts. So in Micah, the rulers of Israel talk about peace, but what they mean is to cling to a status quo in which they can consume literally the flesh of their own people by not proclaiming God's teaching, which is something we hear even more explicitly in Hosea. I mean, clearly the rulers of Israel are betraying the Torah. They're looking to other gods, to other kingdoms, right? They're looking to their own wealth, to their own enlargement, to their own whatever. They're very much involved in peace on their terms. And in Micah, what we see is that peace on their terms results in a consequence of division and strife within families. And Micah specifically talks about, and that's what Jesus is quoting, how you have a man set against his father, a daughter against her mother, and so forth and so on. Just to give another example, in Jeremiah, there's this fantastic scene where all the prophets are coming and prophesying to the kings, and they say, oh, don't worry, Babylon's not going to come. It's all going to be peaceful. You're going to have a long reign. May God continue to bless you and your house and your reign and your kingdom. Everything will be wonderful. It will all be peace. And then they say, Jeremiah, why aren't you saying anything? He's like, you want me to say something? Okay, I'll say something. God is going to send Babylon. They're going to destroy your kingship. They're going to destroy your kingdom. They're going to destroy your land, and you're going to be scattered, and you're going to be sent into exile. And what happens? The king gets mad at him. How dare you? You're unfaithful to my kingship. Right. How can you dare prophesy something like that? And Jeremiah says, I just prophesy what I prophesy. You see what happens. And sure enough, we know that the Babylonians did come and take over the, well, the kingdom, and so the prophet is correct. So the king and the prophet are in cahoots. The king wants the prophet to say, everything's wonderful, everything's great. 
even today. You know, the president surrounds himself with people in his cabinet who all agree with him, all I mean, say yes. It happens in corporations. You have news. It's neither good news or bad news. It's simply data about an event or a trend in the environment. And if there's any risk to anyone, if the data has any implication that's uncomfortable, suddenly an entire army of people converge upon you, the keeper of the data, to try to control how you spin the news. And in the prophetic tradition, there's no spin. And if there is a spin, it's God's spin, which is always against you. God is not going to allow you to put a positive spin on the news and the prophetic tradition. He even will add a negative spin to the news. Just to make sure that you don't go positive. Oh, you think the Babylonians are coming to attack you? I actually have worse news for you. Those are my guys. Right. I'm sending them. Right. So the problem in Micah is not peace. It's how peace functions. You want peace at the expense of the people that you were sent to feed with God's instruction. And you want peace at the expense of, in other contexts, not specifically Micah, at the expense of others who live in God's creation. This is disallowed. The only peace that's allowed, and it's interesting, Jesus is talking to the disciples here. The only peace that's allowed is the peace that comes at your expense for the sake of others, especially those in your charge. So now Jesus is applying Micah, and in a broader sense, the book of the 12, to his disciples who represent the 12 tribes. So there's this beautiful eschatological context, and he's coming to bring the sword against the rulers of the tribes. In Micah 3, 3, thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, who cry peace, when they have something to eat, but declare war against him who puts nothing into their mouths. Right. So what the kings are concerned about is that if the prophet comes and prophesies evil or violence, then the king might be doing something wrong and the people might wonder, oh, if God does not favor this king, maybe he's a bad king, maybe we don't want this king anymore, and then you start getting rumblings of rebellion. The king wants it all to be peaceful, wants it to be orderly, wants everything to be under control. He wants a good economy so he can take credit for right. it. Right. And I mean, he wants a good economy so they have something to eat. But if there's somebody that jeopardizes the food on his plate, the king's plate, then they declare war against him who puts nothing into their mouth. And so later on in chapter 7 of Micah, what he says is that the sword is going to come to the people by means of God sending it to them. On that day, in the future, in the eschaton, Jesus, however, says in chapter 10, verse 34, Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to, quote, set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his household. So when Micah says this will come, Jesus says, I am bringing it. Someone who's familiar with Micah would get goosebumps hearing this reading because just before this passage, there's this ominous, eschatological, beautiful heralding of God's wrath. The day of your watchman, of your punishment has come. Now their confusion is at hand. What an amazing, powerful verse. When you understand the appearance of Jesus to the 12 tribes, to the heads of the 12 tribes, to the ones who should be the shepherds and the teachers of Israel, his appearance to them bringing this warning. 
And again, I want to make it clear, just as they were exposed in Micah, which means the end was already at hand in the reality of the story. The same is true of the Gentiles who hear the same story in the narrative of Jesus Christ in Matthew. We are being exposed again. Only there is a difference. Only this time there is no next time. Because when this was heard in the book of the 12, the end time had not yet come. Now that we hear it in Matthew, this is it. This is the time. After the appearance of Jesus, you will not see him again until there is no more seeing him, which means there's no more opportunity. So it's a very ominous, very serious text. But the key is that the sword is being brought, not as people try to argue, well, some places the Bible's for peace and other places the Bible's for war. No, the Bible is always for war against you for the sake of peace for the others. This is how the Bible takes these big questions that are unsolvable and puts them on the shoulder of the individual personally. The peace that Jesus is calling for is beyond your ability to produce. Because not only is your vote irrelevant, but in a thousand years, no one will remember your name, let alone barely the name of your president who can't bring peace on earth. And the peace that's spoken of in the Old Testament, and I think one of the problems we have is when we say that such and such a religion is a religion of peace. What do we really mean by peace? That's one of the problems. Well, they mean exactly the opposite of Micah. They mean we wish the Muslims would leave us alone to our consumerism and our empire. They don't mean peace. They mean comfort. That's the thing. They want comfortable. Right. They want what the kings want from the prophets in Micah. They want to have three squares a day. That's what they want. They want three squares a day. And if it takes a prophet saying it's all going to be peace, it's all going to be wonderful, please continue to eat your three squares a day, everyone will be happy. If the prophet convinces the king that the other nations are preventing you or potentially preventing you from three squares a day, then it's time to go and declare war on them. It all has to do with your comfort. It has to do with your own ego and your own belly. That's what it is about what is the food in their mouths. It's right. because it's about their belly. And, you know, the only one in the entire scenario who's showing mercy is God who sets his prophet against Israel. God who sets Jesus against the 12 tribes of Israel here to warn them that if you do not submit to your enemies and to one another out of deference to my Torah, it's not that I'm going to sow division. It's that when you sow division yourselves, thank you very much, I will be there to pronounce the Torah to remind you why it is your families are breaking, your people are hungry, and everything's falling apart. That's how it works. That's the system. And I know we say it a lot on this podcast, but I think it's really incumbent upon us to do so because people still want to read scripture as though it's a fortune cookie about what's happening to or by actors outside of themselves, including God, as though God is somewhere off in the distance throwing lightning bolts like Zeus and Apollo. But that's not how the biblical God works. The only true peace is the peace of understanding that God is the provider of all. That when there is food on my plate, I am grateful to God for providing that food. When there is not food on my plate, I thank God for the opportunity not to eat. When I can understand that true peace is accepting God as the provider of all, which is exactly Hosea 1 through 3, this is when there is true peace. 
And the divisions that come, as Jesus describes in the next verses, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. This is the one who looks for his life outside of God. That's what it means. It doesn't say you're supposed to shun your family. He who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. And I want to emphasize the meaning of this in the Roman Empire. If you are taking your cross, there's only one reason why you would be taking your cross. It's because you're under a sentence of death. And not only are you under a sentence of death, you're not under a sentence of death. And then with an appeals process, and then the lawyers are going to talk, and then the judges, and then the Supreme Court. And stuff. No, if you have your cross in your hands, it means you have a little ways left to walk before they put that cross in the ground to put you on. It means your days are literally numbered. Your time is nearly at an end. And so the only way to function is that you have moments left to live. And this is how one sets aside all the silly cares of the world, all the silly cares of the stomach, and one understands there's only one who holds the power of life and death. Well, and this relates to what you said at the beginning of the podcast, and again to these verses about loving father or mother more than me. What Jesus is saying in 37 is that you have to understand that you are a child of the gospel and your duty is to produce children and offspring and to bear fruit in the gospel. And again, he's speaking to the 12. These are 12 tribal sheikhs. They are responsible for their children in the wilderness. And he is saying you can't think of yourself according to your tribal patrimony outside the context of the line of Isaac, which carries the posterity of the faith of Abraham forward through Jesus Christ, who is now speaking to the 12 tribes. And so then what you're saying about the cross stresses exactly what Paul stresses about the coming of the Lord in his letters, that now that this day has come that Micah was talking about, the judgment is at hand. And now you're being told that you have to choose to sire children in the teaching, not in your father's biological seed. Now be it known to you that we're talking about the cross, which means you don't have a lot of time. So there is work to do. We need to get busy. And this is about ultimately in practice pastorally, it's about urgency. Because you may hear this and live a full 80 years or longer. I mean, who knows? But scripture isn't interested in your length of days because we know from Ecclesiastes, even if you live to 500, it's immaterial against the vast expanse of eternity. The question is, what do you do with the time that you have? This is the function here. So you have the Lord coming. It's the eschaton. He's coming to the 12 and he's whipping them and reminding them that they dare not speak like their ancestors in Micah because he will bring suffering. That's the alpha. But at the same time, reminding them there's an omega where there'll be a reckoning on the cross. The time in between is not lengthy. Get moving. Get moving. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father Mark. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.